Uh, friends, we are in Mark 16. If you can find that somewhere, that would be great. As we think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hope you've had a good day. Seven of you have. That's great. Uh, around 2,000 years ago, uh, the Romans killed the leader of a popular Jewish movement. Uh, he was believed by some to be the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ. He had a significant following. And yet you have not heard of him. Uh, his name was Ben Kosiba, and he was killed by the Romans in 135 AD. Uh, the Roman emperor at the time said it took an act of God to get rid of him. Um, his was a huge movement, and yet he's pretty much unknown. Um, I'm sure you don't know people who identify themselves as, as Ben Kosibans. I'm sure you don't point to the building down the road from where you live and say, oh yeah, that's the church where they worship Ben Kosiba. Those are the Ben Kosibians. They believe in Ben Kosibianity. Uh, for most of history, we hadn't heard of him. We only discovered him by accident when someone kicked over a pot in a cave near the Dead Sea in 1951 and, and bits of paper told us about him. Well, that was, as I said, 135 AD, um, in the century before that, the Romans executed another Jewish leader. He had been active in public ministry for three years. At the time of his execution, he had but a handful of followers. And his name you have heard of, because he was called Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, arguably the most famous figure in human history. What began as a very small movement in quite an obscure part of the Roman Empire, within a generation had spread across that empire, and within three centuries, the symbol of that man was inscribed on the shields and coins of the empire. And the question before us tonight is, given there were dozens of messianic movements, dozens of, of people, people thought were the Christ, why have we heard of Jesus? Why have we heard of this one? Well, the answer is summed up by one word with which we are very familiar, and it's our theme this evening. It's uh, one of those words that is familiar, but when we pause enough and look at it enough, it is, it is life-changing, and that is the word resurrection. The conviction by those who followed Jesus at the time and those who follow him now is that we are not following a dead leader, but a risen saviour. Our conviction has been, and will always be, that Jesus is alive. That yes, he really did die, he really was put into the ground. And he really did rise from the dead. He really is alive today. We really can know him. And so as we come to this account in Mark's Gospel of the resurrection, I want us to approach it with two questions that are very much begged by what I've just said in this introduction. The first is, did it happen? What's, what's the evidence for it? 
And then secondly, and, and more significantly, does it matter? Both of those questions Mark is concerned with. Did it happen? He shows us good evidence for why it did happen. Does it matter like nothing else? So firstly, did it happen? Uh, This question is vital, as uh, we were reminded earlier during our time of praise. If Jesus was not raised, it is not the case that we've got a detail of history a bit wrong. If Jesus was not raised, friends, go home. I mean, seriously. Forget the whole thing. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, we don't need to adjust our faith. We need to abandon it. It will do us no ultimate good. Let me just uh, read those words uh, from 1 Corinthians. Uh, Paul says in chapter 15, verse 14, he does a thought experiment. If just to, He says, just imagine if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. That's for starters. Paul is saying, I'm out of a job. It's all been for nothing. All of it for nothing. Our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. It is possible to believe something sincerely that is utterly futile. People often say today, well, as long as you have faith in something. No, 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 no. There is such a thing as futile faith. And if Jesus is not alive, ours is futile faith. And worse than that, Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Jesus is not alive, then our sin has not been paid for. We are not in him We are in our sins. And so Paul can conclude, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. A lot rests on this question. Are we the most pathetic group of people in society? If Jesus is still lying in a grave somewhere outside Jerusalem, then the answer to that question is yes. But if he has been raised, well, we'll get to that. So let's have a look at the the reasons Mark gives us for the fact that this did happen. Mark presents us with three very significant pieces of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. There are other bits of evidence we could think about. I want to particularly focus on what Mark wants us to see from this account. And the first is this. Uh, Mark shows us an empty tomb. Um, the account of that first Easter Sunday begins with a very ordinary scene. Uh, we have in verse 1 uh, these women on their way to anoint Jesus' body. That was the custom of the day. It was a way of honouring the deceased in their final burial. Um, They were headed there early on the Sunday morning so that they uh, could do that. They had all the um, bits and pieces they needed to do that. And I'm sure they were heading there with some very, very deep emotions. Uh, There would have been the enormous grief that they were still in the middle of. Uh, This young life that they cared for, that they had been so inspired by, 
had been cut down. Uh, We also see that they have some concerns. So we see in verse 3, they were saying to another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? That's the kind of bit they haven't figured out yet. They've got all their their stuff to anoint Jesus' body, but they're still thinking, how are we going to get in? How are we going to get into the tomb? These stones that were rolled in front of the tombs were pretty big. Uh, They had seen Jesus buried. They had seen the stone put in place to seal the tomb. They had no idea how they were going to move it. That bit they hadn't figured out. Maybe they were hoping they'd find some other folks around who could help. Maybe some of the soldiers who were, were kind of kicking around would be able to help them too. Well, as they arrive at this tomb, they are hit by a succession of surprises. The first is in verse 4. Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back, and it was very large. That's the first surprise. The stone isn't there. Okay, that particular concern of theirs now doesn't apply. So I guess that's a good surprise. Well, we don't have to figure out the stone. But it's also unsettling. Why is, why is the stone been moved? Who, who's been here? What, what's happened? The second surprise is verse 5. There is someone there. So verse 5 says, Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Not surprising. They walk into this tomb. There is someone there. We know from the other accounts it's an, an angel. They, they, you know, that's going to freak you out, frankly. Um, he speaks to them to, to calm them down. Verse 6, he said to them, do not be alarmed. And says something then very alarming. His effort to calm them down, he then hits them with a third major surprise. He says, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. There's now an empty bed there. So this is, you can imagine, it's early in the morning, they're still in shock, they're grief-stricken. This is a huge amount to take in, their heads must have been spinning. This is overwhelming, this kind of triple whammy of, of, of shocks. But they're given an instruction, notice. See the place where they laid him. You need to look and see that where the body of Jesus was, it no longer is. Uh, We're told in Matthew's account that this angel had rolled away the stone, not to let Jesus out, he had already gone. No, he rolled away the stone to let them in because they needed to see the empty tomb. He is risen, he is not here. See the place where they laid him. And friends, that is the invitation given to every single generation since See the empty tomb. That is an unalterable fact of human history. There is an empty tomb. We need to look at it. Now, they definitely got the right tomb. Some people think, well, maybe they turned up at the wrong tomb, looked a bit similar, that the sat-nav 
directed them wrongly. You know, it all looks the same. They're, they're still overwhelmed with grief. It's early in the morning. It's a bit confusing. But no, they had seen where Jesus was laid. It's not as if they have the map upside down and uh, don't have any kind of wits about them. They had the right tomb. Uh, the body has not been stolen. If either the, the Roman or Jewish authorities had the body of Jesus, they would have been delighted to produce it and end entirely this movement of people following Jesus. No, the tomb is empty because Jesus is risen. There is no other compelling explanation. And anyone wanting to look into this issue has to come to terms with that. How else do you account for this empty tomb? So that's the first piece of evidence, the empty tomb. The second is the witnesses. The very first people to hear the news of the resurrection are these ladies. Mark is very, very specific. Verse 1, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. Uh, These kind of details reflect the fact that Mark is giving us eyewitness testimony. When he gives names like this, it's Mark showing his sources. This is the ancient equivalent of footnotes. He's saying these were the people who were there and who saw this and who told us about it. Mark is not writing some kind of legend. He's writing history. Uh, These ladies were watching from a distance when Jesus died. They were there when the body was put in the tomb and now they are here at the empty tomb to hear that Jesus is risen. Now it may not seem obvious to us but the fact that these first witnesses of the resurrection of women, that's huge. Actually that's massive. At the time of Jesus, women were held in very, very low regard. Uh, in Greek, Jewish, and Roman courts, the, the testimony of a woman didn't count. If you're only witness to, you know, you, you hit someone with your car and there's a discussion about who saw what and what happened, the only witness is a woman, that's not going to help you. That the testimony of a, of a woman was not admissible in court. It didn't count as proper evidence. Um, I mentioned Celsus last night, the the Greek writer. He was trying to refute Christianity, and he believed the strongest argument against Christianity was that it was based on the testimony of women. To him, that was the knockdown argument. Hey guys, have you heard this? You know, these nutty Christians, you do know that their religion's based on what women say, don't you? That's that's gonna that's brilliant in that context. Now the the, the fact that to our ears that sounds so absurd is precisely because we live in a culture that has been heavily influenced by the message of Jesus. If it just seems to us so counterintuitive that you would not admit the, the testimony of a woman, it's because we've been so influenced by the events that these women are testifying to. Does that make sense? But it does mean this, if, if Mark was trying to make this up, if Mark and the others were trying to get Christianity off the ground, they were kind of making up these gospel accounts, 
they would not have put women as the first witnesses. It is too counterproductive. It makes no sense to stress this fact unless this is how it happened. So we have the empty tomb, we have the witnesses being women, and then thirdly, we have the expectations. Uh, There is a detail in these accounts that we often overlook, and that is no one, no one was expecting Jesus to rise again. Uh, Jesus had predicted it on a, a number of different occasions, They either hadn't understood him, hadn't heard him, or just didn't believe it. Okay, these uh, three women were at the tomb expecting to anoint a corpse. They'd got all their corpse anointing stuff with them. They had no expectation that Jesus was going to be alive. They weren't there with with a kind of packet of Sainsbury's brunch sandwiches thinking, well, you know, Jesus will, of course, have risen. He'll be a bit hungry by now. They were not expecting a resurrection. Or think about the other disciples. Where were they that Sunday morning? They weren't outside the tomb waiting for Jesus to emerge. They weren't stood there kind of lined up with party poppers at the ready, a big welcome back Jesus banner. Not a single one of them thought, do you know what, it is the third day. Jesus did say on the third day he'd rise again. Let's, let's at least drive past the tomb. You know, what harm can it do? No, right at now, they, they were pretty much hiding under a table somewhere in Jerusalem. They were terrified the next knock at the door was going to be the authorities coming to get them as well. Their only ambition at this point wasn't to meet their risen saviour, their ambition was, maybe we can get up up to Galilee in one piece. Maybe the boats will still be there. Maybe the fishing is still good back in Galilee. For them, Jesus' death had been game over. It's not what the women were expecting. It's not what the other disciples were expecting. It's not what anyone was expecting. No one in the first century was predisposed to seeing people come back from the dead any more than we are today. Sometimes we look at the sort of first century with, with the snobbery of, of 21st century arrogance and we think, well, of course, they were all stupid then. People believed in things like resurrections then. No, they didn't. You don't have to have a a kind of doctorate in medicine to know that that dead people stay dead. That is not a modern insight. We're not the ones who discovered that. The resurrection of Jesus was not wish fulfillment. It was not auto-suggestion. It wasn't that they'd been telling everyone, well, you know, Jesus is going to rise again. Just you wait and see. And now they made this up in order to save face. None of them thought this was going to happen. But it did, it did happen. The message of Christianity is so counterintuitive. I spent some time recently um, for a few months living in America, and one of the things I had to, 
to try to get used to was driving on the wrong side of the road. Someone very kindly and foolishly lent me their car uh, for a, a few weeks. And it's just all your intuitions are wrong. Every time I turned around a corner or needed to, to kind of make a signal, I, I put the wipers on. Uh, more than once I drove out onto an empty road on the left-hand side. And at one point I remember driving along thinking, that car's in my lane. Why is that car in my lane? They're not moving. One of us needs to move. And then I thought, oh, I'm in America. The gospel is counterintuitive. It's, it's the wrong way around to how we think. And in fact, what happens to the disciples because of the resurrection is one of the most compelling pieces of evidence for the resurrection. These pretty hopeless, terrified group of people were transformed by the message that Jesus had risen again. Peter, who couldn't even face acknowledging Jesus to a servant girl, in the beginning of Acts, is, is preaching boldly about Jesus to the very people who called for Jesus to be killed. We can't account for that, other than the fact they really did believe Jesus was alive. Did it happen? Mark says we need to look at the empty tomb. We need to reckon with the fact that the first witnesses were not the first witnesses you would choose if you were, if you were making this up. And no one was expecting this. This wasn't what anyone thought was going to happen. But secondly, we need to ask more significantly, does it matter? Lots of odd things have happened in history. So, okay, let's assume Jesus did rise again. What, what difference does it make? Well, Mark wants us to know that it means something. He's concerned not just with the evidence, he's concerned with the significance. And there are two particular things that the passage uh, talks about that you can see why this drove the early Christians. You can see why this was the engine for Christianity to spread so dramatically. Why does the resurrection matter? Well, two things from this passage. The first is forgiveness. And the second is a future. These are two things the resurrection of Jesus gives us. Forgiveness and a future. So the first instruction was to, was to see the place where they'd laid him in verse 6. Look at the next instruction in verse 7. that The angel says to them, Go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So their instruction is tell the others, catch them up on this, and then make sure they know to rendezvous in Galilee. Okay, You've got to tell them that this has happened and you've got to tell them we've all got to meet, meet together up in Galilee. 
Now again, think about how the disciples had been doing up until this point. We'd seen again and again through the Gospels that they didn't really believe Jesus. They never quite got his message. They, they did in a superficial way, but they got the wrong end of pretty much every stick that was going. They were also the very same people who had deserted him. Every single one of them. Uh, the moment things started getting tense, they fled. Peter flatly denied Jesus three times. Completely disowned him. Every single one of them failed as disciples of Jesus. And yet the invitation is, come and join him. Come and join him. Uh, the message from Jesus to these failed disciples is not, hey, tell those absolute failures that if they want anything to do with me again, they are going to have to grovel. And I mean really, really grovel. And tell Peter in particular that he's going to have to do extra groveling. And if they are very, very, very lucky, I might let one of them carry my bags. No, the disciples, these failures are invited to come and rejoin Jesus. And Peter is mentioned by name. Do you see that? In verse 7, go and tell his disciples and Peter. Peter is mentioned by name. His had been the biggest screw-up. And you can imagine if, if Peter had not been named, he would have been thinking, well, they, they must mean just the other disciples. They can't mean me. Because I, I just really, really blew it. And so it's very clear, tell his disciples, and yes, that includes Peter. Peter is still a disciple. My friends, that is a real word of grace. What we find when we come back to Jesus is restoration and forgiveness. Friends, we have all failed Jesus. And yet all of us, all of us have forgiveness extended to us by Jesus. None of us has been the people God made us to be. None of us have even been the disciples Jesus has called us to be. But the message of the resurrection is that because Jesus died and rose, even the biggest failures are invited back. So again, if you're sat here this evening thinking, I, yeah, I know we're, none of us is perfect. I know we've all kind of messed up a bit here and there, but honestly... If you knew how much I'd messed up, you would not believe it. Okay, I'm sure there are many, many, many people in this room feeling that way. There's the regular amount of screw-up, and then there's me. Okay, seriously, if you realised how absolutely messed up my Christian life is, you would build a museum to it. But no, the message of the resurrection of Jesus is that even, 
even the worst kind of failure is forgiven. Because Jesus died and rose, we can come back to him with full and free forgiveness. We can see why this message changed the world. So friends, whatever the dimensions of the mess in your life, however great the sin is and has been, your sin is not bigger than Jesus' grace. And his resurrection means you are exactly the kind of person he wants on his team. So if any of us is feeling as though we have, I mean, seriously, by now, I really must have blown it. Hear this invitation. The risen Lord Jesus wants you. There is forgiveness for those who failed him. And then secondly, there's a future for those who follow him. Uh, We see what that immediate future is for the disciples. Uh, Meet Jesus in Galilee. There you will see him, verse 7, just as he said. Okay, let's let's all get get the band back together. We're going back to to Galilee. That's where we're going to meet. Now, at this point, all of them are in Jerusalem. Galilee is way up north. That is is not the obvious place to meet. It's like saying, hey, we've had such a great time at New Horizon this week. Let's have a reunion halfway through the year. That would be great, wouldn't it? Let's all get back together again and let's meet in, let's meet in Kent. That is not the intuitive place to meet. But Galilee had special significance. It was not just a place where Jesus had spent his kind of formative years. The idea was not, let's go back to Galilee and reminisce about the good old days. And do you remember when Jesus first called you and you were fishing and you were mending your nets? No, Galilee had special significance in the Old Testament and all of them would have known that. There was a particular promise that had been made about Galilee. Actually, it's a promise you may well be familiar with from the kind of things we, we sing and read and say at Christmas time. Uh, let me read you some words that you will, you will remember. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Isaiah chapter 9, who copied it from Handel. Okay, those are familiar words to us. Oh, yeah, 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 I'm dialed into that. But the bit bit I missed out is the bit where we're told where that's going to happen. Where is this figure going to appear? At the beginning of Isaiah chapter 9, the answer is Galilee. Galilee of the Gentiles, it's described. Galilee of the nations. This new heavenly invasion into earth is going to come first in Galilee. Because of the geography of of that part of the world, generally, if anyone wants to invade Israel, 
Galilee was the front door. Okay, you had to kind of follow the, the fertile crescent up and round and come down into Israel from the north. So Galilee was used to being invaded, but this is going to be a very different kind of invasion. It's going to be an invasion of light. It's going to be an invasion of peace. It's going to be an invasion of a new rule and a new king. Jesus is going to launch this, and the launching place is Galilee of the nations, because this kingdom is going to be for the nations. Jesus is going to launch this kingdom, and he's going to use his disciples. The trigger for all of this is Jesus is risen from the dead. So the immediate future is mission. As forgiven and restored disciples, Jesus wants us to join in his project. We're now on his team. There's work to be done. There's that kind of future for it. It's absurd, really, isn't it? Jesus of all people, gives, gives us idiots the dignity of being involved in his work. That's crazy. But that is what his resurrection means. So we have a future, in the, in the short term it's to be involved in this mission, but there is an ultimate future as well that this resurrection speaks of. Because the resurrection of Jesus proves that God has a future too for the physical world. This new thing God has done with Jesus' physical body, he intends to do for those who follow him. The resurrection is the great signpost of what the future holds for all of us if we're on board with Jesus. And so if you are people who are familiar with the Apostles' Creed, we, we affirm our faith in two resurrections. We believe that on the third day he rose again. And then we say we believe in the resurrection of the dead. We believe in the, the last because we believe in the first. Because Jesus rose again, we too will be raised from the dead. We will have a physical existence on a new creation to look forward to because of the resurrection of Jesus. In other words, my friends, this, now, this is not ultimate. This broken world is not the only physical world we are going to experience. Our broken lives are not the only lives we're going to experience. Your broken body is not the only body you are going to experience. And so the resurrection releases us from having to live for this world. Um, I read an article, I think it was in the, the New York Times a, a, a couple of years ago, that was about, uh, they're calling it Instagram Envy. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, Instagram is, is a social media site where you primarily share pictures, photographs. And the nature of Instagram is you, you tend to put the, 
the highlights of life on. If, you know, the, the meal that looks actually quite nice. That, that micro moment of New Horizon when it wasn't raining. But the cumulative effect of, of seeing this, this constant stream of everybody else's highlights makes you feel as though your life is nowhere near as glamorous and together and as beautiful as everybody else's. And it fuels this, this thing called fear of missing out, FOMO. And this is such a, a widespread form of anxiety now, it is being studied and diagnosed and, and treated and, and researched. Well, friends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the antidote to Instagram envy. It is the answer to the fear of missing out because if the resurrection of Jesus is true, then the resurrection of those who are in him is inevitable and the renewal of all things is going to be happening. And that releases us from the pressure to think, I've got to experience as much as I can in this life now. So friends, if you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, you don't need a bucket list. You don't need books of things to see before you die. Because death is not going to be the end. Your future is not some random floaty experience on a cloud where you're wearing a nightie. The resurrection of Jesus means your future is physical. Uh, let me read this verse from the end of, of Philippians chapter 3. Uh, Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, and listen to this, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That ultimate exalted resurrection power Jesus has is going to be used to make our present bodies like his glorious resurrection body. So death is not going to be the end of your physical existence. Uh, the, the great Christian poet George Herbert once wrote that death used to be an executioner. But the resurrection has made him just a gardener. Because the resurrection of Jesus means you don't bury a Christian, you just plant them. Did it happen? Absolutely. You, you just cannot account for everything that has happened since other than there is an empty tomb and a risen saviour. There is such a, a resurrection shape to history that we cannot account for otherwise. Did it happen? Yes. Does it matter more than anything else? The empty tomb means there is forgiveness. It doesn't matter what we've done. And there is a future. There's a, a mission for us now. And there is a glorious 
resurrected physical future awaiting us at the end. Friends, that is why people haven't heard of Ben Kosoba. That is why people who even don't believe in him have heard of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we praise you for the truths that Mark gives us in this amazing passage. Father, we thank you for the reality of an empty tomb. We thank you that Jesus rose just as he said he would. Father, we thank you that that resurrection means hope and restoration for failed disciples. So, Father, please help every single one of us this evening to receive that assurance and restoration afresh. It may be we've actually had a lousy week spiritually, a lousy few months spiritually, a lousy year spiritually. It may be that we've failed in ways that no one else even knows about. And yet Jesus' invitation is to come and join him, to be restored to him. Father, we praise you for that. Father, may none of us leave this venue this evening unsure of our standing with Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you for the future Jesus' resurrection guarantees that these frail, broken, and lowly bodies will be made like his glorious body, that death will not be the end, but the means to a perfect, renewed, resurrected existence with Jesus Christ. Father, that message transformed the Roman world. We pray it would transform our world. We pray it would transform each of our hearts. And we pray, as always, in the name of Jesus. Amen.